It's good to be with you again uh, this week uh, for another look at the book of Psalms. Psalm 19 uh, is where we are today, if you turn in your Bibles there. You'll notice uh, it's a similar theme to what we did a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 8. Uh, David is uh, bringing out a similar point here about God revealing himself in creation. Uh, This time he talks about the abundance of the evidence. There is so much that it's pouring forth uh, from what we see around us. Uh, And there are some conclusions we need to come to because of that. God reveals himself and we have to respond to that. That's basically the theme here. God reveals, we respond. So if you would, take a look at Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for this chance for us to be together. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. Uh, Lord, would you teach us the truth of it? Would you always, always remind us of who you are? We thank you for revealing yourself to us. You were under no obligation to do so, yet you chose to. And we thank you ultimately for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. About a year ago, my wife, Lauren, and I watched a documentary. It was a documentary called One Life. We rented it off Amazon. And it, was, it took a look at ten different creatures that you probably have never heard of before. And it showed what they do. It described uh, what they look, showed what they look like, and just gave you about a seven to ten minute segment on each of these unusual creatures. Now, before you think Lauren and I too nerdy, uh, it was narrated by Daniel Craig, who's James Bond. So that kind of made it a little cooler than just this documentary on, anyway, maybe it doesn't. One of the creatures uh, that was described, what I, fa- I found the most interesting, was what's called a grass cutter ant. And it di- does exactly what its name suggested it does. It cuts grass. <clears throat> Every single day of its life, 365, there's never a day that this ant doesn't go and cut grass. It cuts a piece of grass, puts it on its back, and takes it back to its colony or its anthill. The grass is not food for the ants. But the, the ants have built their 
hill around this fungus. And they take the grass and they feed it to the fungus, which breaks the grass down to something the ants can eat. Okay? So imagine this. Unfortunately for the ants, in the breaking down of this piece of grass, it produces high levels of carbon dioxide that are poisonous to the ants. But that doesn't stop them. They have a vent shaft in the middle of their anthill that circulates clean air down into them, and there they go. They have food for themselves. God has made them farmers. He's made them architects, engineers, and oh, by the way, they have the brain the size of a pinhead. <laughs> you hear stories like that, and there may be two people sitting next to each other listening to this story, coming, with, coming up with two completely different conclusions. For us, we would say, wow, this is incredible. Look at the way the Lord has engineered these ants to do this, to know how to take care of themselves, to, to know that let's go get grass and feed it to the fungus and then it gives us food. How did they come up with this? We have an amazing God, amazing creator. But then the person sitting right next to them might say, look at how this ant has evolved. Look at how it came from some, something little and has become, has become so smart. It's just evolved to understand how to do this. The evidence is the same. The story was the same. The movie was the same. But the conclusions are completely different. How? How do, how do we make an account for that? God reveals himself to us in creation. We look out. We see a grass cutter ant or we see the stars. We see the heavens. And we come to a conclusion, wow, we have a great creator and a great sustainer of life. But not everybody believes that. Not everybody agrees with us, so how do we account for these differences? Well, the psalm tells us. It divides the revelation of God into two categories. There's a general revelation, which is explained in verses 1 through 6, what we see in creation. Then there's special revelation, which we see in verses 7 and following. <laughs> general revelation, it's obvious. Everybody can see it. Everybody can understand it. Special revelation is what God gives us in himself and in his word. So because God has revealed himself to us, what does our response have to be? It's got to be worship. So let's look first at how God reveals himself, and then secondly at what our response must be. <clears throat> line after line in these first six verses, the greatness of God is proclaimed. <laughs> It's as David is looking up into the sky. It's a day after day, it's preaching to us. It's as if he's saying, literally, the creation is preaching to us a message. There is a God, and he did all this. It says, general revelation is continuous. Day after day, they pour forth speech. It's not something like, you better look closely or you're going to miss it. No, it's, it's constant. Day after day, the proclamation, there is a God, and he did this, is being is being told. It pours forth speech, it says. It's this idea of there's, there's an abundance of information. It's gushing out. Okay? It's not, we can't have the excuse, I just didn't have enough evidence. No, it's, it's day after day, and it's pouring forth from creation. Isn't this true? Do you see it? You look to the stars, you see a sunset, you stand on the beach, you... You do any number of things, and you're wowed at what you see. You see it if you study the intricacies of the human body, the uniqueness of a snowflake or a flower petal. It's all preaching to us, and it's the same message. There is a God, and he's incredible, and he's big. We see it in something as small as an atom or 
the second law of thermodynamics or even the, the laughter of a small child. The message is the same. It's all agreeing with each other. There is a God and he's the creator. General revelation is obvious and plain, says this psalm. Why do so many people not see it this way? It's a question I posed at the very beginning. Why do so many refuse to see God's hand in creation and instead attribute it to something such as random chance, accident, it just kind of happened this way and we're just not really sure? Well, Paul gives a great commentary on this idea, but also this chapter in Romans chapter 1. He says in verses 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known, of, <clears throat> what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is saying the evidence is abundant and it's clear, and anybody that denies it is suppressing the truth within them. It's not that they don't have enough information. So the, the cry, I just didn't have enough information, it's not true. Paul's taking that away. He's saying, no, you're suppressing what you know within yourself is true. Paul affirms everything that Davis says about God in Psalm 19. It's the, the evidence is overwhelming, and it's obvious. There is a God, and he created everything. There's more than enough evidence. That isn't the problem. <laughs> this is not the only place in Scripture that teaches that the wicked person suppresses or ignores truth. We looked at another one last week, Psalm chapter 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. <clears throat> we hear stories such as this, uh, the grass cutter ant. We look outside of the beauty and the majesty of creation what is stirred within you? What do you? As you stand on the sea, the proverbial standing on the seashore, the Grand Canyon, or some amazing place of God's nature and beauty, what do you think about? What's stirred within you? Is it worship? I think that's where David is trying to push us. Why don't other people see it this way? Isn't that the question that's being asked here? Because if we admit there's a creator and sustainer, the suppressing of truth really comes down to if I admit that this is not just about random processes and it's about a God, it's about a sustainer and creator, what has to then be my response to that creator and sustainer? I've got to worship him. If he did all this, if he put all this into motion, I've got to worship this thing, this entity, this deity. It's got to be that. So the suppression of truth is I don't want to worship because I want to worship myself. I want to worship I've come up with these things and I don't want to give my devotion and allegiance to someone or something else. I want it to be me. We don't want to worship something else. We want to worship ourselves. Atheism, it seems, is nothing more than self or human worship. We've got to come up with the answers and the understanding. <clears throat> But the only acceptable response upon seeing the divine hand of God is to worship him. Pray that the Lord would always allow this truth to be evident and that we'd never suppress it in our own lives. <clears throat> That's general revelation. But there's a second type of revelation that God reveals himself. He reveals it in a special way through his word. 
Now, these two revelations don't disagree with one another. They're giving, generally speaking, the same message, but it's just <clears throat> but with a slight difference. David in this psalm is not asking us to worship the creation as if it contains something divine within it. It's not the conclusion of general revelation is, oh, I'm going to worship the things that I see. It's pointing us to something else. The creation is not saying, look how wonderful I am. It's, look how wonderful the, the one is who made me or made everything that you see. But we also have to go a step further. It's not all that we need. General revelation takes the excuses away. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 1. You don't have an excuse not to believe in God and then therefore point to Christ. General revelation takes it away. But there's another type of revelation. We still need the word of God. And in his word, is on, that's the only place that's found this special revelation. So what does it mean? Well, number one, special revelation confirms what's already evident in creation. There is a God. Number two, it warns us. It tells us about our sin, its far-reaching effects. The word of God tells us about the lies and the errors of this world, the evil one. It shows us our need for Christ, our need for grace and forgiveness. General revelation is gracious because it's obvious and abundant. Special revelation is gracious because God was not required to show us our need that we have and that is met by Christ. So it says, Paul, or excuse me, David says, beginning in verse 7, he starts describing what this special revelation is. Okay? The law of the Lord is perfect. He uses several descriptive terms for this special revelation. It's law, it's precepts, it's testimony, it's fear, it's rules, okay? This is this special information. It says it, it's perfect, it makes us wise, it enlightens our eyes, it's clean, it's enduring, it's more desirable than gold, it's sweeter than honey. Have you ever said those things about the Word of God? It's sweeter than honey, it's desirable, I have an affection for it, I hope so. Often our view of the Word of God is, it's a suggestion. It's a killjoy. It's not something that's really wonderful and sweet to us. But God gives it to us because He really does know what's best for us. He's not trying to steal our fun and joy. If David's description of God's Word is true, then we must study it more. We must immerse ourselves in it even more. Don't you see how gracious this revelation is? <clears throat> Because it shows us our need. The law of God is not meant to make us feel better about ourselves. It's meant to show us our need for Jesus Christ. So let us be marked by people who study it and who meditate upon it. <clears throat> you know, we often say, I know I need to read the scriptures more. I know I need to spend time with the Lord more, but I just can't seem to find the time. Well, perhaps it's not that we can't find the time. We've just chosen not to make the time. If this revelation is so special, shouldn't we immerse ourselves in it? <coughs> this suppression of truth. <laughs> this truth that our culture, or even us sometimes, we say, I see it, I understand what the Lord wants from me, but we push it down. We, I don't want to listen to that. I'm convicted, so I don't want to address those problems. Or I see that God exists, but we suppress it and push it out of our mind. 
one of my favorite movies uh, ever. I bet most of you have seen it. It's on TV like all the time, so you've probably seen part of it. It's the movie A Few Good Men. Uh, it's, it came out in the mid-90s. Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson are the, the, the two main actors in this movie. Uh, Tom Cruise is his young JAG officer. He is uh, known for uh, plea bargains in his cases. He doesn't really take his job seriously. He's kind of this hotshot young lawyer. Jack Nicholson is a, com- he's a colonel in the military. He's a commanding officer at Gu- Guantanamo Bay. So Tom Cruise has been given a, a law case. These two young uh, soldiers have been accused of killing another soldier. And through the investigation, Tom Cruise finds out that they did actually kill this other soldier. But it wasn't out of malicious intent. It actually was a directive from the commanding officer, Jack Nicholson, that he had given to these two soldiers to kind of rough up this other guy because he had been out of line. And the result was they actually killed him. And so Tom Cruise puts Jack Nicholson on the stand. Obviously, this was a court-martial. This was a very uh, delicate situation as he began interrogating him. The climactic scene of this movie, all of you, have, many of you, I imagine, have seen it. But Tom Cruise is interrogating Jack Nicholson. He says, I want answers. Nicholson looks back, you want answers? Tom Cruise says, I want the truth. And what does Jack Nicholson say? You can't handle the truth. (laughs) His whole point in all the answers that Nicholson had been giving was, we're doing here, (laughs) we're protecting you. You can't handle the truth of what I go through on a daily basis. You can't handle it. You don't understand what I go through, young JAG officer. Right? You can't handle the truth. Have you ever been reading Scripture and something may hit you or have hit you for the first time. I haven't seen that before. It's the truth about his word, and it convicts you. It hits you deeply. Can you handle the truth of what he says? It's hard because sometimes we read it and we're offended. Or Is that really the way he wants me to live? Or was he serious when he said that? For others, it's, is he really there because sometimes I don't feel like he is? Is he really directing my life? Does he really expect me to put my hope in his son, Jesus Christ? And so we suppress the truth. But it's by this truth we're saved. And it's it's, it's in this truth that we must respond to him. So how do we respond? It is worship, but what does that look like specifically? David says in verses 12 to 14. verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what is our response? Given this knowledge that we have accumulated generally and in a special way, the response from David is that he immediately appeals to the mercy of God. He desires forgiveness, he asks in verse 13. From sins I know I committed and the ones that I guess I've committed, these presumptuous sins. Declare me innocent. I see you, God, in what you've revealed. And so his immediate response is, I need to be forgiven, and I need to throw myself onto the mercy of God. His first response is prayer. Lord, forgive me. He doesn't pray for willpower. He doesn't pray that the Lord would just push him along a little bit. Give me mercy, please. Ultimate response to creation in the Word of God is for us to turn to Christ. We see how great God is. We see how small we are. 
And the proper response to all of this is modeled by David at the very end, which I just read. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, your meditations and your prayers aren't acceptable to him. Your, the things, your good deeds aren't acceptable to him, but they are in Christ. He makes them acceptable. We bring our worship, we bring our hearts to him, and they're not acceptable, but Christ makes them acceptable. Would you make them acceptable in your sight, says David. So how are you today responding to the revelation of God? Is it something you pursue? Is it something that you desire to know deeper? What do you do when the truth of Scripture is revealed to you? Do you suppress it? I'm just not so sure about that. Or do you desire to and yearn to know it more and more? Praying that God would have mercy on you. Praying for forgiveness and thanking him for Christ all over again. Let us respond in prayer and in trust and faith. David, in another place in Scripture, gives us a great model of this. He does so in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He has committed a sin with, with Bathsheba. He has murdered uh, her husband Uriah. And then the prophet Nathan has called him on it. <laughs> you are the man, David, that I've just been describing in this story. And so David responds to having his, this truth of who he is as a sinner exposed to him. He says in Psalm chapter 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He says, don't have mercy on me according to all the good things that I've actually done. He doesn't ask him just to, to brush over the bad things. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to who you are. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, David would have never seen this forgiveness, this need for it, who he is, had it not been revealed to him. He would have never known. Had Nathan never come to him, he would have never known. You would have never known that you needed Jesus had that preacher not told you that day, had that friend not sat down with you, had Scripture not revealed it to you on that day through the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have known you needed him unless it was revealed to you. And you saw the truth of it because it was revealed to you. <laughs> Let us not think for one minute that the righteousness we have in Christ was because of... Yes, it was something that we did, but what drove you to that? You saw the truth of who you are and your need. Our cleansing is because of Christ. Our acceptance is because of Christ. Our obedience is because of Christ and because of his revelation to us. So God has revealed himself. We've made that clear from this psalm. What is your response? What has it been in the past? Maybe you have known Christ for a long time, but what is your response to it today? Is there a sin in your life that he's trying to expose? Don't you see that's hurtful? Don't you see that's against my will? What are you going to do with the truth of that revelation? And pray that more and more would know him. More and more would not suppress the truth in their own heart, but would accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth of your word, that every single word in, 
in the scriptures, we can trust them. We don't have to worry if they're right, worry if they're accurate, worry if they're, if they're what you want us to hear, because they are. Your word says that these scriptures are breathed out by you. You literally breathed them out to us. Lord, thank you that we can have confidence in everything that it says. We can trust it. Lord, would you give us hearts that pursue truth, no matter how hard it might be, how difficult it might be to swallow, that we would believe it and trust it because you love us and know what's best for us. And thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he meets all of our needs that we have. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.
Thank you. 